You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And if you have a worship guide, you can use the back of it. It has a place for you to take notes if you would like to do that. Uh, So I would encourage you toward that end as we look again to this Gospel of John nearing the end of the story, at least for uh, this evangelist as he writes his Gospel. John 20 and verse 31 says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so hopefully you have memorized that by now, but that is the purpose of this Gospel, that we would believe upon Christ and be saved, be born again. And that is the only way anyone can be saved. Amen, church? is through belief, faith in Christ and what He has done for us. So last week we entertained a question, the question that I believe Pilate was faced as he's trying Jesus, and that is the question, who is Lord? So the question on the floor last week as we looked at this private conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate was in a personal battle uh, trying to determine for himself who it was that had authority, who had power, who had position, and he wanted it. He wanted the position and the power. He wanted to say what was going to happen and he wanted to defend his position at any cost. But the fact is that Jesus was king no matter what Pilate believed or didn't believe. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not a struggle over Jesus as King of Israel, but rather Jesus is King over the whole world and all of creation. He is Creator and we serve Him. And so as King of kings, the struggle is not whether He is King, but whether we will submit to Him as King. And that led us to a personal struggle. The personal struggle that each and every one of us have with the concept of Lordship. We, by nature, like Pilate, want control of our own lives. We want autonomy. We want personal freedom. In other words, we want to live in a world that there is no God except for us. But in any case, no matter how much we resist the kingly reign of Jesus, Jesus is King over all people in every place at every time in every way. And so, all people must submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The good news is that all who surrender to Lordship, all who stop resisting the Lordship of Jesus Christ and give their lives by faith to Jesus, turn from their sins, trust in His completed work on the cross, all of those who do that are saved. They're saved by the hand of God. Jesus is our Lord if you are a Christian. But what about when the struggle 
is more than just with a person before Jesus. What happens when that struggle becomes more universal among a people? Perhaps in the words of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What happens when an entire people become so hardened against God as they were in 1 Samuel 8 that they demand a king of their own making? And we'll look at that passage in a few moments. The question is this. This question, who is Lord, that is very personal, when it is answered wrong among a people, a group of people for so long that it becomes a corporate stain. And Jesus is not only rejected as Lord personally, but dethroned altogether corporately. This is what we find here in our passage. And I believe that it is a, 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 an application that is so readily applied to where we live today. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. As we look to John chapter 19, beginning in verse 12 and following. The Bible says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. In an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered, them, delivered him over to them to be crucified. Father, even as we gather here this morning as Your people, we recognize that the culture in which we live has made the same declaration. We have no God but Caesar. No God but a God of our own making that loves what we do and approves of everything that we approve of. And we follow Him and worship and serve Him. And we know, God, that it is not You, Jehovah, It is not the King of kings and Lord of lords. The world around us is opposed to Christ. And even still, as we consider our own lives, if we're honest, there are remnants in our own life of ways that we oppose the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So I pray that it would not be said in this room We have no king but Caesar. Quite the opposite. I pray that we would all together proclaim we have no king but Jesus. That today we would be more submissive to You as Lord of our lives, whether believer or unbeliever. I pray that unbelievers in this room would come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved 
and submit to You as Lord of Lords. I pray that Christians in this room would turn from ways that displease You and that we would serve You as Lord of our life and that You would be honored in our obedience. And most importantly, that You, above all, would receive glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. It's a pretty audacious statement, isn't it? We have no king but Caesar. It's arrogant. Some more prideful and flagrant and hardened versions of, version of the words of, of Pilate that we've already seen when he said to Jesus, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? There, Pilate is arguing that his authority exceeds the authority of Jesus, that his kingship, his reign is above the, the kingship and reign of Jesus. But this here is a different statement. This is not saying that we are king above Jesus. This is saying that there is no king in Jesus at all because there is only one king and his name is Caesar. That's the argument. By the way, the same nation who would presume to name God as their king is now rejecting the Son of God and naming a human king instead. And even, even presumptuously stating that there's no king at all. We have no king but Caesar. Not even claiming Jehovah God as their king. So I ask the question to you again. What happens when an entire people reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ? The conversation is as follows. John tells us from the very moment of the private conversation ending between Jesus and Pilate, that Pilate sought to release him. He couldn't find any fault in Jesus, and from the very beginning, he's trying to find a way to release Jesus, to wash his hands of the situation. Certainly couldn't find any reason to publicly execute him. But as much as Pilate wants to get out of the situation, the Jews become more and more and more angry. To the point that they finally cry out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Those are fighting words to Pilate. He's a servant of Caesar, remember? They say everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In essence, to allow Jesus to continue to, to be who He is among the people, to lead in the ways that He's leading. He's letting Him be the king that He claims to be. And that's insurrection. And that's essentially making Pilate a greater ruler than Caesar. Pilate, you can't do that. The Jews are manipulating the conversation. So John tells us that when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. The Bema seat, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, a place called the stone pavement, or an Aramaic Gabbatha. And see the irony here. Pilate is seated upon the judgment seat, judging one who is innocent of any crime, much less sin against God and handing down a guilty verdict. When in reality, Jesus is the one who is the eternal judge, the righteous judge, who deserves to hand down a guilty verdict to Pilate and to everyone who has Him on trial. It's ironic. But even more ironic than that is the matter of this being prophetic. Verse 14 now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, 
It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your King. Jesus is their Messiah. He is their Lord. And He's about to be crucified. But He is being crucified and announced by the the secular world as their King in the same way that their own prophet announced Him to be the Lamb of God. Do you see the correlation between what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what now Pilate is saying, and John tells us right on the day of preparation, the day of Passover, when the Lamb was being prepared, and He says, Behold your King. Every year, they offer sacrifices. These sacrifices are supposed to be offered for the, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, and yet the writer of Hebrews tells us that those things are insufficient. But the One who is all-sufficient is now announced. Behold your King, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And what was their response? Away with Him. We don't want Him. Kill Him. Pilate said to them, Do you, do you really? You really want me to crucify your, your king? We have no king but Caesar. You feel the hatred in their hearts. The animosity in their hearts toward this One who is Jesus, God in the flesh, in essence saying, we don't need God. I want you to hold your place there for just a moment because we need to get some context. There is so much to see parallel with some things that have already happened in the life of Israel. So let me invite you to hold your place there in John chapter 19 and turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And if you can't get there quickly enough or you want to just kind of follow along, it's actually going to be on the screen before you. Don't do that often. If you can get to it in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that. But just for convenience sake, it's there if you can read it, I hope. I want you to think with me about this nation of people that is now saying crucify. Story here in 1 Samuel chapter 8 comes on the heels of the description that we read in Judges of this people, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So enter 1 Samuel 8, the provision of a king. But it comes first, not based on what God initiates, but rather what the people demand. There's a demand among the people for a king. And Israel believes that if they have a human king like all the other nations around them, they have this one who is strong, who's a good leader, who's well qualified, that if you place this, this man before us, that we will be protected from the nations around them. But that marks in them a far more dangerous and even deadly desire. So what is that desire? Begin with me at verse 4. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, By the way, just a little bit of background. Samuel in the nation of Israel is the first prophet 
judge. The first prophet judge. Hugely important. And they say to him, Behold, you are old. (laughs) Old man jokes. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You can already see this kind of this kind of bias toward we we need someone human and strong and present. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. He petitions the Lord on their behalf. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, This is so important. Don't miss this. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. And so when they're asking for a king, this is what they've done. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so this is idolatry, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So again, what happens to an entire nation, an entire group of people who rejects Jesus as king. Doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't this the very thing that's happening in John chapter 19? We want a human king to rule us. There's no king but Caesar. Samuel, who is Israel's first prophet judge, was rejected for a human king. Despite, by the way, all the destruction that was coming. And he warned them about that. All the destruction that was coming as a result of their demand for human kings. Through all this line of human kings, it was nothing but ultimate destruction. Nonetheless, they demand his human king over and against the ruler God had given them. And what does God say about it? What's the heart of the matter? Is it about a throne at all, really? Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. What was their choice? We'll have a king of our own making. We don't need you, God. A world where the only God is us. We set the rules. And we determine what is right and wrong. We have no king but Caesar. By the way, you follow history at all, strikingly similar results between what happened in 1 Samuel 8 and following and what happened in John 19 and following. And it's so similar that it's eerie. 1 Samuel 8 tells us all of the destruction in that same chapter. The Old Testament, a trail of destruction that ultimately leads to the destruction of the people. We find that at the end of the Old Testament where the nation was led into captivity and all was destroyed. All because... They rejected God as their king. Here in John 19, the nation rejects the Son of God as their king and swears their allegiance to who? Caesar. 70 A.D., the entire nation falls again. The temple destroyed. And they are once again in ruins. Why? Because they rejected God as their king. See, the words of the crowd about Caesar 
do they not rightly apply to the crowd themselves about God? Rephrase it. If you reject this man, Jesus, you're not God's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes God. That's the reality of what's happening. That's exactly what they did. Away with him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. So the ending of this scene, the ending of the scene, the hanging ending over their lives is this. John says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Of course, the the Jews themselves, because they're Jewish, not Roman, they have no authority to crucify Jesus. So John is not physically handing handing Jesus over to them. Luke tells it this way, He delivered Jesus over to their will. He gave them what they wanted. Is that not for Samuel 8? And we see the results. When God gives us over to what we so desperately want as sinners, it leads only to destruction. Can I give you the heart of the matter this morning? Any people, not just person, because now this rises to the national level here and could rise to any level among a group of people, cultural segment, whatever group of people you put into place. Any people among whom Jesus is not enthroned as king is in imminent and eternal danger. Any people among whom Jesus is not enthroned as king is in imminent and eternal danger. That's what we're supposed to see in John chapter 19. The destruction of the nation in the Old Testament and the New Testament were physical, yes, but they were emblematic of spiritual destruction. We see this. John chapter 12. We've already read this. John chapter 12 and verse 37 and following. Though He had done so many signs before them, it's as if the miracle worker that we just sang about is standing there in their presence for them to judge and for them to see with their own eyes who He is. And yet, John 12 and verse 37 says they still did not believe in Him. So that the words spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And listen, John takes the same indicting prophecy from Isaiah and applies it to these people when he says, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. That is a spiritual indictment. You could make the same application to any country, couldn't you? Any people who over a prolonged amount of time individually resist the Lordship of Jesus such that the result is an entire group of people, perhaps even nation of people, who resist the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Does that not sound like the nation in which we live? Tragically, 
But the same could be said of any segment of the population. Could be said of any nation that has ever existed. Could be said of a town. Could be said of a local church. Could be said of a family. Any group of people that go on resisting the Lordship of Christ breeds a generation of people, an entire group of people who also resist the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that group of people is in imminent and eternal danger. And before you are quick to make this impersonal and corporate only, do you know how we get there? One heart and one mind at a time. We were discussing this this morning to some degree in Connect Group and a question was raised, how do we get out of the mess that we're in? And the answer is the same. One heart, one life at a time. But when we become so entrenched in the situation that we're in, it is difficult. It's difficult to come to the place of repentance. And so, as you think about your own life and the circles that you're in, answer the question, is America in imminent and eternal danger? Is our denomination in imminent and eternal danger? Is our town, our church, is Jesus enthroned as King in these places is what I'm asking you. And if not, what do we do? Well, there is good news. You want the good news? There is good news in this passage. The warning of the passage is not without a window of hope. Not only to individual sinners, but also to corporate groups of sinners of which were it not from the grace of God, I would be in the same position. Listen again to the landing point of the passage. Verse 16. So He delivered Him over to them to be crucified. That's a murderous, rebellious, sinful act against a holy God. Right? To put to death to kill, to murder the Son of God, that is sinful. They wanted Him dead. And they're guilty. As are we. For all of our acts of rebellion against God. But at the same time, it was the will of God to put Him to death by the hands of murderous men so that the same murderous men and we could be saved. That's a miracle. (laughs) That's amazing that God could do such a thing that He could take the mess that we're in and that He could offer a way of salvation that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with what He alone could do and He did it perfectly and He's offered a way of salvation to sinners. Even the sinner's who put the nails in His hands. How do I know? 
Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Listen very carefully to what Peter says to the crowd there. By the way, Jews again, the same ones who put Jesus to death. Here's what Peter says to them. Men of Israel, Jews, same crowd, guilty of murder here after the cross. They've already put Jesus to death. He says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, watch this, he wasn't believed in, he wasn't received, he was rejected by men, he was put to death, he was murdered. Here's what verse 23 says, this Jesus delivered, was it Pilate who delivered Jesus? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God who delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Yes, Pilate was an instrument in the process. Yes, Pilate bears the guilt of his own decision and his hatred for Jesus. The Jews bear the same weight. The, the whole Roman trial was, was a curse. It was something that was against a holy God. But at the end of the day, a sovereign God was responsible for offering up His Son for the salvation of the world. And then he says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Doesn't absolve them of guilt. And then verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You wanted God dead, but God is not dead. He is surely alive. You wanted Jesus gone, but you could not rid the world of Him. And it didn't happen 2,000 years ago. It cannot happen now. Jesus is is as much Lord of lords and King of kings seated on the throne today as He ever has been. And He will from now until all of eternity. Jesus is Lord. The end of that sermon. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel... Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, Paul says, every knee is going to bow at the feet of Jesus. Every tongue is going to confess his lordship, his kingship. Jesus is Lord. And here's the window. You ready? Verse 37. And when they'd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Have you been there? You come to the place where you see clearly who Jesus is. Realize that He's holy and He's righteous and He is King. And you're a wretched sinner. I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. Because of my sin, I deserve eternal separation from God? What do I do? If it's left up to me to pull myself up by my bootstraps and fix my life, I'm going to fail over and over and over again. And what do I do when I find myself in the slop with the pigs? Having received the end of my own decisions. Here's what Peter says. Repent 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. He's talking to murderers means no matter who you are this morning, no matter what sin grievously you've sinned against God, this morning you can be saved and forgiven of your sins because Jesus saves. And anyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins. It is not through anything I do, but what Christ has done on my behalf. So when you hear the words, so He delivered Him over to them to be crucified. See the wickedness of your sin, but see the, the wisdom of God in the cross. And if it cuts to your heart, if you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repent and believe the Gospel. If you were just to take that action, that simple act of obedience of following Jesus, Him saving you, you simply responding to the call, And you were to play it back through the passage. Listen to what you would hear. Verse 12 says that then on Pilate sought to release him and the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. But that's not true for you anymore, see. What's true for you is that anyone who enthrones Jesus is in a right relationship with God. There's three things that we see. Anyone who enthrones Jesus is in a right relationship with God. They're wanting to manipulate Pilate's heart. You're not in a right relationship with Caesar if you do this. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't care what your relationship with Caesar is like. The highest concern of your life is that you're in a right relationship with Jesus and anyone, with God. And anyone who is a friend of Jesus, anyone who's put their faith in Jesus, is in a right relationship with God. You've been restored not to an earthly king, but to the king of kings. So you now live your life in a way that's in opposition to the kingdoms of this world. They're arguing that They would be opposed to Caesar, but in reality, this is exactly what we find ourselves doing is being opposed to Caesar. And we don't do so simply because we don't like our president or we don't want to follow the rules. or We don't want to obey laws. That's actually counter Christ in many ways. The reality is when Jesus is our Lord, our King, it changes every decision we make. We live as citizens of earth with our eyes set in allegiance and our hearts set in allegiance to the one who is our king, Jesus. What else does it change? Secondly, anyone who enthrones Jesus is justified by the eternal judge. Justified by the eternal judge. Verse 13, Now when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And there may Gabbatha. The irony here is that Jesus is the one who is on trial, though he was innocent. 
And even more ironic than that is that Jesus stood on trial as an innocent man to receive a guilty verdict in order that he might offer himself up and his righteousness to sinners who are themselves guilty, not before a human judge, but before him, the eternal judge. That's the gospel. We're not justified by any work that we can do. We're justified by the shedding of Jesus' perfect blood. It is not through our righteous acts that we are justified. It is through the condemnation of Jesus that we are justified. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. This is chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus did for you. Verse 6, For while, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And listen to verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, made right, declared not guilty by His blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God to come. See, the greatest concern of our lives should not be standing before any human judge, but standing before the eternal judge, King Jesus. And the verdict that is on all of our heads, apart from the grace of God, apart from what Christ has done on the cross and a saving relationship with Jesus, the verdict is guilty and we are deserving of the wrath of God for all of eternity. And the window of hope is that anyone who enthrones Jesus is justified as if you've never sinned. Which leads to number three. How does that happen? Anyone who enthrones Jesus is forgiven of all sin. Anyone who enthrones Jesus is forgiven of all sin. Verse 14. We're told about the day of preparation. So here they are preparing lambs for slaughter so that their sins will be forgiven. And Hebrews said, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to keep doing that over and over and over. And you have human mediators that are flawed as well. But John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says that Jesus removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. That He cast it into the sea never to be remembered again. It is never counted against you what it means to be forgiven. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is to receive Jesus as the great Lamb of God. The One who is all-sufficient. He removes all transgression. He pays every debt. And so when you enthrone Jesus, and you submit to His sovereign reign as King, you receive this forgiveness. But we must be ever so careful because we do not receive the blood of the Lamb without also falling under the reign of the King. If Jesus is your Savior, He must also be your Lord. So the question is, 
Will you hear the warning of God's Word and all that His Word says? And will you enthrone Jesus as King of your heart and life? With every head bowed and every eye closed. This morning, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. And I really want you to hear from my heart this morning. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus, please hear me. Please understand the weight of where you stand right now. Because you are in imminent and eternal danger. And there is a window of hope. God has so graciously offered you a window of hope this morning. If you right now would repent of your sins... Believe the Gospel and trust in Christ with all of your heart. In just a few moments, if that is you, I want to invite you right where you'll be standing to step out of that place. Come down this aisle. Maybe bring somebody with you if you need somebody to come along with you. But this morning, you come and confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's you in just a few moments. Step out of the place where you're standing Right down this aisle. Today, Pastor, I want to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And today, I'll lead you to Him. And God will save you. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're here this morning and you know Christ. But there's some Lordship issues for you. There's some places in your heart that are not honoring to the Lord. There's some things that you've been looking at. Some thoughts that are crossing through your mind. Words that you're saying. Don't please the Lord. Is Jesus Lord there? Is He Lord there? And if He is, will you repent today? He's been so gracious to you. He's given you the life of His Son. Don't send Him away choosing a different king. You've already confessed Him as your king. So would you stand in bold obedience this morning and make Christ Lord there. Repent of your sin. So in just a few moments, here's what we're going to do. All across the room, we're going to stand and I'm going to pray and this altar is going to be open. Your opportunity to respond to the Lord. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe there's other decisions that need to be made. Maybe you want to trust in Jesus. You do that right now today. As soon as I finish praying. Would you stand with me all across the room? God, we ask that this morning You would have Your way in our hearts and in this place and that You would save and lead us to repentance by Your very kindness as Your Word says. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship connect, 
grow and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.